Good morning. <clears throat> Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We return this morning to look at uh, the sustained look on the tongue. And uh, again, unfortunately, it's another heavy sermon. And it's not because I want to, but it's where we are in the section. There is light at the end of the tunnel when we get to verse 13. James gives us the corrective although he alludes to that before we get there. This morning we will see that the uncontrollable nature of the tongue reveals something about its evil intent, human inability, and source. Now, although I am covering a lot more over the next couple of weeks, I will try to give you a big picture this morning. And for those of you who are visiting Due to the time, I may not finish my sermon, but I will try to get as much in uh, before the end of this morning's service. Verse 7 to 8 speaks of the untamable nature of the tongue. Verse 9 through to 10 speaks about the inconsistent nature of the tongue. And verse 11 to 12 speaks about the true nature or source of the tongue. If you remember back when we started probably about six weeks ago now, I did not give you that last point, and I only added that recently as I was looking through my notes, there is a separation at the end there where James gives uh, an illustration, and I believe that that deserves its own time, and so we will do that. In our verses this morning, James deals with the seemingly inescapable problem of the uncontrollable or untamable nature of the tongue. This passage highlights human ability, and he contrasts it with human inability. He explains how we are able to execute mastery over the animal world, yet the smallest member of our body, which he has mentioned already before, seems to be untamable, uncontrollable. The style of writing is really a mastery that James has put together and the way that he correlates and contrasts and elevates certain things. The unstated question that is before us is how can a person have such mastery and control over untamable beasts yet fail to have control over the smallest member in his body? How can a person be so patient with a stupid animal? Some of them are. And yet have no patience for people who are made just like him. Human inability is magnified by human ability. Now I know you may be thinking the opposite, that human ability magnifies human inability. James gives us a contrasting argument. Now while it seems that it is impossible for believers to control their tongue, let me remind you of James's corrective at the end of verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10. For from the same mouth comes a blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That is the corrective. So always keep that in mind. While he's stating the inability of man to control his tongue, he does bring us back to what God desires. That is not what we should be doing. 
And so later on, we will see what he wants us to do. This means then that James is not suggesting that it is impossible for believers to control their tongue. Now, when you read verse 7 and 8, it may seem that way. And I will try to explain to you why our thinking in that terms is wrong. Those in view in verse 7 and 8 are in a specific state. This is a general assertion which is true of all mankind, but there's a specific state that he has in mind. And those who are in the state produce the qualities in verse 8. It is true of them. James begins by stating an amazing marvel and an incredible problem. Animals can be tamed, but it seems that the tongue is not able to be tamed. Read with me from verse 7 onwards. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now many forget the comparison that is being made here. They immediately jump to verse 8. No man can tame the tongue, but they forget what goes before that. There's a contrast that is taking place, but no man can tame the tongue. So James is putting the inability of man in contrast to with the ability of man. Often this is taken to be true of believers. Well, I'm going to contend that James is speaking in general terms of humanity, similarly to how Paul speaks of humanity in Romans chapter 3. He zooms in on a specific person that is in view. And I will show that James has this person constantly in view in the entire book of James as we will go back to James chapter 1. Now, why do I say that, there is, that, that the believer should be able to control his tongue? Well, turn back to James chapter 1. And I know I'm going to get back to this later. And I repeat it for a reason. But I want to just highlight it to you at this stage. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. When you see that religion, that word is outward acts of worship. And it's summarized in religion. So, Religion or outward acts of worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by or from the world. What is he talking about? Acts of worship that God will accept. Now look up a verse prior to this. If anyone thinks that he is religious or that he is religious or that he has acts of worship that is acceptable and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And this person's outward acts of worship, religion, is worthless. James, in his mind, says that if you are not able 
to control your tongue, then your worship is worthless. So couple that with verse 10, which is the corrective in the context in which we are in. James obviously wants believers to control his tongue. And so now we have to come to the sticks and understand what he means then by saying, but no man being able or is able to tame his tongue. Oftentimes, that specific line is ripped out of context and it's used as an excuse. Maybe by husbands who lash their wives with their tongue. You know what? I just can't control it. Or maybe by young men and women who are loose, they have freedom of speech on social media. I'm just going to say it. Well, as a believer, this is not a license or a free uh, cord for you to use your tongue within, without any control. James, while making the statement, still has in mind that believers should be different. So let me prove this from the text. So James raises this problem, the control of the animal versus the uncontrolled tongues. Look at verse 7 again. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Now note that this verse begins with a little word called for. And if you know anything about grammar, you know that that looks backwards. It's looking at an antecedent that precedes this. And the context before um, that precedes us is verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. God puts it in our body to demonstrate something. Staining the whole body. It demonstrates a, a mark or a stain upon our life. And I explained this last time. That when we use our tongue incorrectly, it stains us. It damages our character. And that's the way that James is speaking about it. Setting on fire the entire cause of life. Everything in the course of our existence is set ablaze by how we use our tongues. And then is set on fire by Gehenna. I prefer that translation over hell. Because hell gives the eschatological place of punishment idea. And, and Gehenna gives the location idea. And it's actually that that James has in mind. So it's not... The demonic world, and I, I uh, read a commentary a few weeks ago where this guy says that um, Satan is behind the use of our tongue. He fuels our tongue, and so we say what the devil wants us to say. Hang on. If the devil is causing you to say what you are saying, then blame it on the devil. I'm not to blame. God must just forgive me because the devil made me do it. I'm sorry. That is not what James is saying. If you remember, and if you weren't your last, last time, I would encourage you to go back to that sermon. James is talking about the description of horror in this place, Gehenna. He's, he's conjuring up an image that they would be familiar with as Jews. It's a place of putrid quality. It's despicable in nature, and you want nothing to do with that place as a Jew. And he says, yes, that is actually in your heart. That is what drives the use of your tongue. Now, if we push the devil is behind the tongue idea, then the following verses, verse 7 and 8, would make absolutely no sense because James then toggles to mankind's ability and inability. 
He's always had the ability of man in view. So contextually, it cannot be demons behind the use of the tongue. He wants him to understand the horror that lies behind it. And now he's going to explain that horror. For every kind of beast can be controlled by mankind. James explains what he means by the tongue is set on fire by hell. He's pointing to the source. He's pointing to what actually causes you to speak the horrendous things that you say. He uses an analogy, but it's a little bit more than some people say. It's normally just called an illustration. Take note of how James explains these few things. He says, every kind of beast has been tamed. The word kind is actually the word nature. Now that changes things a little bit because if you hear this sentence that every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, what do you think? Every individual animal, right? That's not in view. It's the same word, this word kind, is the same word that is used in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul says that the Gentiles do by nature the things that are written in the law. It is that word, nature. It is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to speak of, speak of the nature or the quality of people that do things which is contrary to the nature or to nature. It's illustrative of intrinsic quality. So in Paul's writing, it is used to describe a, describe a specific person. But here, it is no different, just used of Animals. So let me put that into the text. Listen to what James says. For every nature of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. That says something slightly different. Does not mean every single animal can be tamed. Because there are some animals that may be untamable. But he's talking about every kind of nature of animal can be tamed. I'm not sure if you follow me yet. There are certain animals who are wild beasts. And so that nature can be represented in a variety of different animals. There are certain animals who are more docile. And that nature can be represented by a variety of different animals, right? Now, where would a cat fall? Wild or docile? Yes, on the wild side, right? They don't want to be tamed. You just have to respect them. Stay out of their domain. It is true for you cat people. So it is the nature of the animal that is in view and not the speciation or the kind of animal that is in view. Now he mentions kinds, and I'll explain that in a moment's time, why that is significant. Why does James mention these animals in a way to explain man's ability to control. Now take notice, there are four categories. There, he says, for every nature of beast, bird, reptile, which is a wide translation, and sea creature. Reptile is actually creepy crawlies. You know what that means, right? I don't know why they call reptiles creepy crawlies, because I love reptiles. I, I have a, I've got two chameleons. So I had, what, four? Five. The others, some are dead and some are missing. We're waiting for them to come back. James says 
these four categories of animals are beasts, animals that walk, um, birds, animals that fly, creeping things or reptiles, animals that crawl, and sea creatures, obvious, like animals that swim. So out of these animals, he says, every kind of, not every kind, every nature from all these animals can be tamed. But these categories should immediately, for you Bible scholars, spark a memory. To a Jew, it would be absolutely obvious. You've heard them before, and I will show you that you've heard them before. But before I get to that, take note of the word that um, James uses three times in this, these two verses. Every kind of beast, bird, reptile, and sea creature can be what? Tamed. And has been what? Tamed. But no man or human being can what? Tame the tongue. Hermeneutic principle number one, oh, whatever, seven. When there's repetition, there's meaning. When James repeats his word, and he only has to say it once because the verbal sense can carry over a number of sentences. But he repeats it for a specific reason, and he uses different tenses to highlight and signify what he's trying to say. And so he wants you to zoom in on this word, tame, tame, and tame. What does it mean? This word tame, and when we think of this word tame, we are thinking domestication. He's not meaning domestication. The word actually means to subjugate, to subdue, even to curb, to control. When we think sub. Uh, when we think domestication, we think of dogs and cats. You are domesticating your dog, unless you have Lorenzo's dog. That's a different case. <laughs> he's, he's partly domesticated. The other times he listens to no man. He, he's the beast that James talks about here. But what is this, why does these words sound so familiar? And it should, because James is connecting it to antecedent revelation. Now, when we think of quotes, it is just a, an author in the New Testament grabbing another author's words. It is far more significant than that. What James is doing is saying, I'm wanting you to think about this. And so he uses words that come from that context and drags it into his context. And he's going to show why human beings have control. There are at least 13 occurrences of these four groups of animals appearing in different passages, but there's only one that correlates the way that James says it here. So go over to Genesis chapter 9. For those of you who thought about that, well done, you passed the class. If you did not, you need to do Old Testament survey with me. Genesis chapter 9. As you turn there, let me remind you that often commentators and even preachers will just say, oh, it's a quotation, uh, and they move on. Well, in this church, we want to pause and ask, well, why is a quotation made, and what's the significance of that quotation? Every New Testament author that quotes an Old Testament writer has a reason for quoting that writer. It is not just to grab at words. He's got enough words to say what he wants to say because he's writing a book. But he wants you to think about something. In fact, his audience would be much more familiar, in most cases, with the passage that he's quoting from. 
It is no different to what James is doing here. He's drawing from this passage. Take note in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where does that come from? Genesis 1. Take note in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every, take note, beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, and upon everything that creeps on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. Hang on. Is that not the order in which James says? Exactly the same. Slightly different words because it's in Hebrew and the transliteration into Greek is not always accurate or exactly the same, but it's exactly the same order. In fact, the Genesis account is different to the order here in in Genesis chapter 9. I mean, the Genesis account, the Genesis 1 account is different to the order here in in Genesis chapter 9. So why is James zooming in on this? Because this passage tells us why we can domesticate animals, why we can rule over animals. Take note of what God says. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. And so blah, blah, blah. The same order is found in James. Genesis 9 informs us that this is why man can control animals. But it's not the whole picture. Animals fear us. The reason they attack is because they're scared of you. Not because they are more... Okay, they are wild beasts. They, they are... I mean, there are bears that will rip your arm off at the, the blink of an, in the blink of an eye. They are wild beasts. But the reason he does is because he's scared of you. What do you do when you're scared of somebody? Now, generally, previously, men used to fight. Nowadays, men, men just flee. <laughs> we have a different breed of mankind today. But generally, I was part of that crew that grew up when, when somebody... Um, came into my face, he, he would know not to do that again. I'm just saying the Lord changed my heart. I don't, <laughs> I don't do that anymore. The point is that these animals are under our control. Where does Moses get this idea from um, that we are able to control animals from? Well, we have to go to the source, right? Genesis chapter 1. So turn there. Verse 28 specifically. I'm going to read from verse 26. Then God says, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them have dominion. Take note of that word, dominion. Over the fish, notice the difference, of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on it. Completely different order to Genesis 9. So James is thinking Genesis 9. He's providing the reason why we can control animals. But where does Moses get that idea from? Well, this is the passage. Verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that is exactly the same as Genesis 9, and subdue it. Dominate it. Subjugate it. And have dominion, rule over the fish, the birds, uh, every living creature that moves on the earth. 
So then, what is James alluding to? The reality that God has given us an innate ability and authority to rule over the animal kingdom. Animals ought not to rule mankind. Baboons in Constantia do not make the rules. Now, sometimes they do. But baboons should not dictate to us where we can live. Nor should your cat determine in your household what you can do and cannot do. I see a lot of bowing brows. I'm going to pray for you guys. God has given us the authority to subjugate, to control and tame animals. It is ingrained in our nature. It is given to us by God. It's a God-given ability and right. We are not like the greeners and we are not like the animal lovers who say, oh, animals are people too. They are not people too. They are under people. God has made this world that way. What is James trying to say by drawing the Genesis account into this? We have been given the right by God to subjugate animals, but they are not created in the image of God. Keep that in mind. They are not like human beings. You can control them. You can reign over them. And it's right that you do so. Now go back to James 3. Let's see the significance. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be Tamed. Why? Because God placed the fear of you in them. That is why. So by right, you have every right to control the animal world. Every nature of species can be tamed. Now, some take it in a very literal sense in saying that every single animal has been tamed because of what he says at the end of the verse here, and has been tamed. The sense of these two terms can be tamed, illustrates the possibility and potentiality, and has been tamed, actually just indicates that once they have been controlled, once they have been tamed, they remain in that state of being tamed. For instance, when a dog is tamed and his owner is present, he should remain tamed. Now we know that that's not always the case, because sometimes we lose control of our animals, and we can blame the fall for that. But the point is that generally... If they are under the watch care of their owner, they should remain tamed. The force of this verbal repetition expresses not only the capacity to rule, but that when an animal has been tamed, it will remain tamed, which means the capacity to rule for a long time over that thing. Every nature of species can be tamed. Why? Because God has placed the fear of man in them. James is expressing the creation mandate. God has given us the capacity to rule over animals. This world belongs to us. God has given us the right to reign in his um, uh, place as 
vice regents. One author says it this way, quote, This allusion to creation shows that James is making a general theological assertion about the nature of the world. Human ability to tame the world is inherent in the image of God and the divine mandate to subdue the world, end quote. You can go to Psalm 8 and you'll see exactly the same thing. And I think you get the point. God has given us the right to reign over animals. I, I remember seeing, I don't know if it was with my wife, I think it was in um, it was Peter Maddisburg, uh, I forget where we were, where uh, there was an orca that came out onto the, the breached the water and uh, at one of these water parks and was eating out of the hand of the handler. That's amazing control. Uh, they've tamed that thing uh, to eat out of the hands of humans, which normally would be eating the hand of the human. Now it's out of the hands of a human. Uh, I remember a, a while back that a family in the U.S. Um, made a pet out of a, is it a black bear. That is not normal. Probably illegally so. I know that there are people in South Africa that illegally... Um, trained and tamed a cheetah, not not in the in a in a in a, a wildlife reserve, but as a pet. And in the 1970s, a Russian family tamed two lion pubs. Now it didn't end up very good for them, because those pubs grew up to be wild, <laughs> hungry lions. Nevertheless. It shows that you can have the capacity to tame animals. And that is what James is after here. Human ability. We have been granted this human ability to control wild beasts. So why then the statement? Why does James highlight and illustrate human capacity to control animals? What is, what is in view here? It's not just the passive animals. It's all kind of species of natures of animals. Animals are brute beasts left by themselves. The beauty and strength of a horse untouched by mankind is unparalleled by mankind. When he kicks you, you know you're kicked. You'll stay down. Animals are wild things that God has given us the power to control them. Here's what James is saying. Take note of the way that this text flows. For every kind of beast is under our control, under our capacity to reign over. Every kind of beast, the nature of every beast can be controlled by mankind. But, 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 no human being can tame the tongue. So you have this marvelous, powerful, authoritative gift of God to control wild animals and then the tongue. You look the other way. What absurdity. Animals are not created in the image of God. They do not have souls like men and women. Animals do not share companionship like men and women. I don't care if you're an animal person and you say that that is my person. There's something wrong with you. They cannot provide the companionship that a human being can. Now, there are those who identify as animals today and they find companionship in animals. Again, there is something wrong with that. 
God has given human beings the capacity to have a relationship with those who've been made in the image of God. Yet, you do not, you do not lash your tongue out at your dumb dog. You'll take out the whip and whip him and say, this is just an idiot dog. I don't know even why I have it. Yet, when it comes to, to people, we show intense urgency, exceptional determination, and unrelenting patience to control the uncontrollable beast. Yet, when it comes to people made in the image of God, we care very little about how we speak to them. Have you seen people talk to dogs? Especially when they're puppies? Man, I don't know. And that very tongue that shows tremendous tenderness to a little pup will hew down an entire congregation of God's people made in the image of God. Look at verse 8. Tremendous power in verse 7. An inconsistent nature in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. This is not right, is what James is saying. How can we be sure that James has the creation mandate, especially Genesis 9, in view? Look at verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, the tongue, we curse people, take note of this, who are made in the image or likeness of God. Where does that phrase come from? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. I think it's 26. Let us make man in our image. And the very next line says, and let them subjugate and have dominion. It's the same context. And so James draws upon that which they already know and says, listen, you have been made in the image of God and also you've been given the authority by God to rule over the animals. Now think about this. You've got this power to control animals, but you do not have the power to control your tongue. Come on, guys. That is why verse 10 makes sense. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Yet, verse 8 is ripped out of con co context and people say, no, 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 we can't control our tongues. Now, James is actually making the opposite argument by pointing out the absurdity of the statement. So, you go ahead and control animals, yet you allow your tongue to wander as a free agent. I should rather say, you allow your tongue to wander as a free agent uncharted, unchained beast. James does expect us to control the tongue and what he's doing in this mastery of uh, uh, text, the way that he puts it together, he says, hang on, God gives you capacity to control. What makes you think that you cannot control the tongue? The contrast is obvious. The absurdity is irrational. This is evident in the way that he writes the text. They are uncontrollable, has been tamed, but yet 
the thing that should be tamed is not tamed. It's absurd. One author says that this is a deliberate exaggeration by James to highlight the obvious contrast. And I like that. I don't know if it's a deliberate a contrast. It, it is um, a contrast, but I don't know if James is de- uh, deliberately exaggerating the contrast. James is condemning the uncontrolled tongue by pointing to the nature of human ability to control. And then he highlights that ability to control by speaking about our inability to control a little thing. Now, this statement, but no man can tame the tongue, in all its absurdity, is not directed at believers. How do I know that? James goes on to explain what he means by this untamed tongue. Apart from God, no one can tame the tongue. In fact, the text says it this way. But the tongue, no man can tame. Or rather, rather, no human being can tame. In the original, the tongue is moved up to the front because the emphasis and the contrast is the animal world versus the tongue. So the tongue is moved into the place of the subject, but it's actually the object of the sentence. So James e- emphasizes this idea that the tongue, no man can Now, why do I say that this does not relate to believers? Well, there's a number of different things that points us out. And I already pointed to verse 10 in in the context here that he expects something different from the my brothers, these my brothers, which are believing Christians or Jews. Secondly, the lack of the control of the tongue is inconsistent with true worship. Look at Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He's pointing out inconsistency. Chapter 1, verse 27, which I pointed out earlier, uh, verse 26, take note to this. And if anyone thinks that his outward acts of worship, um, he's religious, uh, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's outward acts of worship is worthless. There are definite signs that he's expecting believers to have control of the tongue. At the end of verse 8 here, James gives us the signs of an uncontrolled tongue. It is a restless evil, and it is full of deadly poison. I'm going to um, reduce some of my notes here because I won't be able to get through it. So I'm going to try to wrap this up as we get to the end of this sermon. What are the signs of the uncontrolled tongue? Now, he gives us two in verse 8, and then he expands on it in verse 9 and verse 10. So let me give you the outline. Verse 8 Uh, He tells us the nature and the effect of the tongue. And in verse 9, he tells us the inconsistency of the tongue. And in verse uh, 10, uh, sorry, verse uh, verse 11 and 12, he gives us the fruit and the outcome of the tongue. And we'll get to that uh, next week. So let me answer this question. Does James expect believers to control their tongue? 
The answer is obviously what? Yes. He condemns the misuse and the uncontrolled nature of the tongue. And he wants believers to know that there is the way that you use your tongue, the way that the tongue is demonstrated in an uncontrolled way says something about who you are. There's a greater reality in view here. We have a worse problem than we think. It's more than a disobedient tongue. Because if you have a, a, a pet that acts out of um, order, it goes out of the, the element of control, you can always bring him back to control. But when your tongue is acting in a way that demonstrates an uncontrolled heart, there's a bigger problem. That is what James has in view here. The hint is, in this last two explanations of the untamed tongue, it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So what is meant by restless evil? Restless evil. James is going to show them the true quality, the true nature, the true essence of their hearts. When a tongue is uncontrolled, then it says something about the nature of that person. Now, take a look at the text. And for those of you who have been with me in James for a long time, this word should stand out. Take a note. It is, this is the tongue, it is a restless, evil. It is an unstable evil. It is a uncontrolled evil. Why does it sound familiar? Turn back to James chapter 1 verse 8. James here speaks of a, an individual that is double-minded. Notice what he says. He is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see that word unstable? That's exactly the same word. He is a restless man or restless in all his ways. Unstable in all his ways. That is a description of the man as a whole. Not just in one aspect of his life. James is giving a holistic picture of this person. Now, this guy is not a believer. How do I know that? Look at verse 7. This person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? He's double-minded and unstable. This guy is far from God. In fact, God will not hear this man's prayer. So you should not expect anything to come from God. The contrast in this, James chapter 1, is between this rich man who banks on his riches and the poor man, the lowly man, the, the believer who boasts in his low um, uh, estate, in his uh, humiliation. The rich man, secondly, will perish with his riches. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, uh, and withers with... And, sorry, and the sun 
rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So as he still goes after his riches, God cuts him off. This is not the believer. So James describes in verse 7 and 8 and and 11 the unbeliever in contrast to the believing person. Now, in verse 8, it is no different. What James is doing is highlighting the nature of the individual. It is a restless evil. What is he talking about? The tongue, it is unstable, it is inconsistent, it is unruly, it is ungovernable. Why? Because the person is unstable, he is inconsistent, he is unruly, he is un- ungovernable. What is true of the tongue is also true of the person. Why is that the case? Remember what I said a few weeks ago. When the Bible speaks about an organ, what are they generally talking about? The heart. If the tongue is a restless evil, what does that say about the heart? It is restless and it is evil. In fact, the way that James explains this gives this idea that it is chaotic, chaotic, like a wild beast, untamable. If that is your tongue, if your tongue is not tamed, I am very concerned for your salvation. That is what he's pointing out here. You are not in a right place if this is a description of your tongue. Secondly, it gets worse. He says it's full of deadly poison. And I'm going to have to take some time and explain this. What does he mean by deadly poison? This is not a phrase that James made up. He's quoting. It's the same passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3, verse 13. And again, some of you who are Bible scholars would, exact, would know exactly where this comes from. Now go to Psalm 140. I'm going to start there and start pointing out the significance of this <clears throat> quote. Understand we are in Hebrew here, and so the wording may differ slightly, but I'm sure you're going to get the sense. Psalm 140, David <clears throat> Speaks of evil men. Take notice what he says in verse 1. Deliver me, O Yahweh, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. And so this is what the psalm is about. He seeks deliverance from God because he's surrounded by evil men. Take note of those two words. Evil men who demonstrate the evilness in violence. But take note in verse 2. He says, who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. What is that? Poison. The description here is of those men who are evil, and on their tongue they have what? Poison. Go back to Psalm 58. So uh, David in that context speaks very limitedly of the evil people. But if you go to Psalm 58, take note on how he explains this. Verse 3. 
the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. Now, it doesn't mean that these people have poisonous tongues, but it means that these people have poisonous tongues. You get what I'm saying, right? (laughs) He's not saying that there are snakes, but he's saying that their tongues, when it is used, it causes death. But take note the cause of why the tongues are so venomous. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They are born far from God. They go astray from birth speaking lies. This is who they are by nature. So David here, in a wide scope explanation of what man is by nature, says that these people who are after me, they are born this way. Ever heard that phrase before? Yes, they are. Born sinful. That is what they mean. Estranged from God. What is David doing? He's explaining the nature of man. And demonstrating that evilness in the heart, that poison in the heart, is seen on their tongue. Go now to Romans chapter 3. As I said to you, quotes are not merely quotes. James uses a, an abbreviated quote to point back to the reality of what is in the content of the heart. Look at Romans chapter 3. Paul, now banking on what David says in Psalm 140 and Psalm uh, 58, says in verse 13, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Take note of what he says at the end there. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? All mankind in their fallen state. Wherever these words are used in describing the tongue or describing the nature of mankind, never is a believer in view. Go back to James. Keep that in mind. With all that in the back of your memory, think about what James is saying. But the tongue, tongue, no human being can tame. This is why. It is a restless evil. Why? Because its source is evil. And it's full of deadly poison. If there's poison on your tongue, what does it say about your heart? You are far from God. Look at the next line. Think of Romans chapter 3. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. James is not describing the inability of believers. He's explaining the natural fallen human condition. This is who we are when we are born far from God. It is true of those who are not believers. You will have a restless tongue. You will have an unstable tongue. You will have an uncontrolled tongue. And you will have poison on your lips. You will hurt people if you are an unbeliever. James expects us 
to do and to act differently. The logical conclusion that James draws on here is that the nature of man is made manifest on the tongue of man. Do you want to know who you are? Look at this last day. Look at this last week. Look at this last month and how you've used your tongue. That use tells you exactly who you are. If your tongue is uncontrolled, then you are estranged from God. That means you are an unbeliever. In fact, take note of how James says this. No human being by himself and for himself can tame the tongue. We are not able to tame the tongue by ourselves, which means we can tame our tongue when we have what? God in our lives. How do I know that? Go to James chapter 1, verse 18. I don't know if you've noticed, but my style of preaching is biblical, theological preaching from the specific book. Often I have to go out, but I want to give you a theology of James, or that James has within the corridors of his own writing. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Almost language that relates to animals, right? The kind of first fruits of his creatures. But take note what he says. He brought us forth. What is that? That is new birth. This is God giving life. This is God granting new birth to people. This is God's regenerative power. And look at the result of this. Know this, verse 19. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, there's an immediate change. Where's the change seen? In how you speak, how you respond, and how you act. When God changes your life, your tongue gets changed with it. When God changes your life, He changes the way that you respond to people. You're not just angry at life. The anger that He speaks about here is anger towards people. The nature of the heart is equal to the state of the tongue. Let me say it this way. The state of the tongue is the revelatory of the nature of the heart. I've been alluding to this throughout these uh, sermon series. This should drive us to introspection. I don't know about you, but these sermons have been hard. It's been pointing out things in my life that I needed to be aware of and take note of. The untamable tongue bespeaks of an untamed heart. And if it's you, I call to you by God's grace to call upon God for grace. To be saved. And if you as a believer do not care how you use your tongue, then brother or sister, I pray that you ask for grace that God would change the way that you use your tongue. I like what the Bible, uh, through the Bible commentary says, Quote, the most untamable thing in the world has its den just behind the teeth. 
that's one little animal which no zoo has in capacity, uh, in captivity. No circus can make it perform. No man can tame. Only a regenerate tongue in a redeemed body, a tongue that God has tamed, can be used for God. End quote. A heart that has been changed by the will of God is governed by praise, thanksgiving, not only worship, but good things upon God's people. Let's pray. Father, keep your saints back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Father, forgive us, for we use our tongues without thought. We sometimes have mindless responses to those whom we're supposed to love the most. Forgive us. As we look inwardly, Lord, we groan. But as we look upward, as we look Christward, we rejoice because we have forgiveness in you. And we have hope that there is change because you bring change in lives that has first been far from you, but now have been brought near by the precious blood of Christ. Help us not to walk in iniquity, but in righteousness. Help us not to talk as those who are unbelievers, but to, to have a talk that demonstrates a life that has been changed by the work of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. And that demonstrates the love of God to the people of God. Thank you for your grace and your, your patience. We pray that you continue to change us for your glory as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.